John added to the other Gospels. So much of what we find in the Gospel of John isn't found in the first three, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he gives us, if you remember, right off chapter one, he tells us who Jesus is. Doesn't leave for us to figure it out along the way, but he tells us who Jesus is. And then he says, now, here's his life. Look, look at Jesus' life and see how true it is that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the King of Israel, that Jesus is the Word, the one who is God and came and dwelt among us. Now, last week we saw as Jesus uh, began, gave his first miraculous sign at a wedding, and it was done really for a small audience. As far from what we can tell from the text, it was only on behalf of, of really his disciples, his mother, and some servants who were involved in the process. As we continue in chapter 2, we're going to see Jesus be going very public now with his ministry and really in a very dramatic way. So follow along with, with me, if you would, as I read verses 12 through 25 of John chapter 2. <clears throat> After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was nodding and trusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So coming off of the wedding in Cana and the, the miraculous turning of water into wine, Jesus heads with his, it's interesting, it says in verse 12, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And just in, of interest here that, that after having gone to a wedding where his family was present, uh, he goes down, and this would have been by elevation. He's actually heading east down to Capernaum, near, near the Sea of Galilee. 
And, and I think one of the, one of the main reasons to, that this is in here, it kind of seems like, well, here's just kind of a step in the progression of the journey, but why mention it? But Capernaum will become his, the center, really, of operations for Jesus as his ministry progresses. And it's interesting that he goes there with his family and his disciples, which tells us he maybe had some family connections in Capernaum. But this is also a journey that he makes with his brothers. And that's interesting because we will see a division happen there within his family as Jesus' ministry progresses. So please just take note there of verse 12. And it says there, he went down to Capernaum, but he went up to Jerusalem, verse, verse 13 says. It was the Passover, uh, Jewish, the Jewish feast. And Jesus went up. And you're saying, well, he went south. How is it that he went up? Uh, but again, they didn't think in the, in the same terms that we do. Uh, for one thing, they were going up in elevation. Jerusalem was on a hill, uh, from our perspective, not really tall. But they were going up in elevation, but also understanding that from the Jewish point of view, everything is, uh, going to Jerusalem, you always go up. Because that is the peak, that is the place of worship. Interestingly, uh, Morgan brought up that idea of, of going up the mountains in, in the adult Sunday school class this morning as well, uh, but going up to the place of worship. And going there for Passover, this wasn't Jesus' first time going to Jerusalem for the Passover. If you turn over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 41 and 42, uh, we go back to that time <clears throat> Many years previous to that, it says, uh, speaking of Jesus, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, and he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. So this wasn't the first time Jesus had gone to the Passover in Jerusalem. I think sometimes we think, oh, well, there was this time when he was 12. But also notice that it was the 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 pattern, the habit, the custom of his family to go every year. And so though the Passover is between when Jesus was 12 and now as he's about 30, aren't mentioned, it would seem that his family would have kept that, that pattern. And so showing up in Jerusalem for Passover was very normal. Likely his brothers went, they're not mentioned here, uh, whether they went together or not. But he's gone, and this is a regular thing, and this is something that he was used to doing. But I want us just to stop, too, and, and contemplate this concept that Jesus went to the Passover. Uh, Passover, of course, was the, uh, the feast, the celebration, the remembrance that God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and that the, the Passover lamb had been sacrificed in place of the firstborn. It was a remembrance that then God took them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land to become their own nation. But here, what would it be like for the true Passover lamb, the one who fulfilled that whole picture, to go to the feast of Passover? Imagine the things that were going through Jesus' mind each time he went, and especially this time, as now he is entering into his public ministry. Uh, he's been, de been declared 
by a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, He knows that within just a few years, he will be actually offered as the ultimate Passover lamb to pay for the sins of mankind. And so he's going, and and this trip would have been one where as they went, uh, the the roads would have been full of people going to the the feast. It came from all over the, the Roman Empire, all over the world for this according to the, 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 what the law called especially the men to do, but it was a family time as well. And so going along with all kinds of crowds, what is he thinking? Was this a time really for these people to remember God's deliverance being observed as a time of worship? Or did the Jews do to their holidays what we do to ours? When we say we're, we're celebrating Jesus' birth or we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection and it just turns into a lot of stuff and activity. I got a feeling there was some of that. But it was also a tense time because when the Jewish people gathered together like this, uh, there was that, that remembering we are our own nation. Who are these Romans? And there had often been trouble at feasts and festivals. And so... The Romans were on edge. Uh, usually the Roman governor would come up from his, his uh, residence in Caesarea and be there for these feasts, and there would be extra soldiers on hand. That's, that's kind of the, the, the feel, the, uh, the, the mood of Passover. And so as Jesus, in verse 14, he comes into the temple, what is it he sees as he walks into the temple itself? Well, first of all, let's stop and talk a little bit about what the purpose of the temple is anyway. Why is there a temple in Israel? Well, go back to Exodus 25, verse 8. As God is giving instructions for the people to build the tabernacle, the the kind of the movable temple that they had with them in the wilderness as they were coming out of Egypt... And it served that, its purpose for many years before Solomon built the, built the, the building, the temple. Uh, so you have the tabernacle here uh, be, being given instructions about it. Exodus 25 and verse 8, it says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? That I may dwell among them. That's why there was a, the tabernacle and then later the temple. It was a place where God's presence would be specially revealed in the midst of Israel, that he lives with them, he dwells among them. And that place, of course, would be the central place of worship for the people of Israel too, to come to the house of God, right? It would be where the sacrifices that were commanded in the Old Testament law were offered, where prayers were offered up to God, where singing would happen to the glory of God. It was about a relationship with their God. The people would come into his house. This is where he showed that he was with them, dwelling among them. So for Jesus, who we've been told in chapter 1 is, what, who, the Son of God, to go to the temple, in a sense, is like coming home. He is coming to his father's house. Matter of fact, back in, in Luke chapter 2, when, when he was there earlier as a 12-year-old, 
verse 49, look at what he says. And he said to them, this is when they couldn't, remember Mary and Joseph couldn't find him and they came back and found him in the temple. And he said to them, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus from way back very clearly knew this, this place was his father's house. The center of the things of Israel. The center of God's specially revealed presence. It was here that we would naturally be. And now he's coming back home, you could say, to his father's house. And his father's house was a special place. Again, why was it there? Well, look at Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7. Gives us a little bit more insight into that as well. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. My my righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now let the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from my people. Let not the foreigner, I'm sorry. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Because behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, to everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples." See, God has this central location, not just for the people of Israel, but he says, even those of you who don't fit with the picture that the temple is, because there were rules and restrictions. Foreigners couldn't go to just every place within the temple. Uh, people who, had, who were disfigured and different things, because of the symbolism of what was going on in the temple, couldn't go to all the places in the temple. But God said here in Isaiah that he was going to draw every kind of people. And because a person wasn't Jewish, God wasn't going to cut him off from his salvation. But in fact, he says, I'm going to set up a special place of memorial for those who put their trust in me and follow me. And and the picture was the, the nations one day, and this will happen, coming to the temple, streaming in and worshiping the one true God. And by the way, that was in our in Sunday school class, the adult Sunday school class today as well, from Isaiah chapter 2. There are many other places. And so in the temple itself, and if you want to go ahead and put that picture up, please, Anna, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. 
And it's this area right through here. It was a, a large area. It was a place where anyone, Jew or Gentile, could come and worship and pray to the God of Israel. But in keeping with Israel's special place in God's plan and the picture that the, the, that the temple made, only Israelites could go to the inner courts of the temple. And there's a low wall that separates the inner courts there around the temple buildings itself. And here you have the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the altar where the sacrifices were made. But if you are a Gentile, there's this low wall right here. And if you go ahead and go to the next slide, it zooms in a little bit. And it separates it off. And posted on that wall were signs that said, No foreigner may enter within the, the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows. Death. So the place reserved for worship by, the, by, by foreigners, by people who were not Jewish, as Jesus walks in, what's going on there? Well, it's filled with a noisy market. It's filled with animals and loud voices. They've taken that space that God has reserved for people from other nations to come in and to worship him and to pray, and they've turned it into marketplace. They're selling animals for sacrifice. They're exchanging money. And in, of course, for your sacrifices, you had to have approved animals. They needed to be pure, right? They needed to not be blemished. Well, that opens up a great opportunity for somebody who's looking for it. And in this case, it was the priests, specifically the high priest and his family. And so you would have inspectors there, of course. You have to make sure that the animals are what they ought to be. Good thing in following the law. But they were also experts in finding flaws in animals. And a person brings in their own animal. It's like, oh, well, this animal isn't, isn't flawless, isn't spotless. Look at this that's wrong with it. Oh, but right over here, we happen to have a sheep that's been pre-inspected and approved. We have an approved Oxen for that sacrifice. We have an approved dove for that sacrifice. Of course, the price was exorbitant. And they really had people over a barrel. They were taking advantage of people within these things. Also, at, at Passover, there was the, uh, the payment, the annual payment <clears throat> of the temple tax, which each man over 20 years old a conscientious Jew, anyway, would need to bring. But, of course, you couldn't just bring it in, in any currency, and people were coming from all over the place, and so they would have to bring in uh, for the right kind of coin, which had the proper amount of silver in it for that, that temple tax. Well, guess what? In the process of making sure you had the right coin, there were fees attached in order to trans transfer your money, your currency, into the currency that was accepted in the temple, and... The fees could be really exorbitant. And so here in this place that was intended for the worship of the nations, basically robbery was taking place. People were being taken advantage of. 
And so as Jesus sees this, he sees an area that, that some sarcastic commentators in those days dubbed, they, they called the temple the bazaars of Annas, Annas being the high priest. And they knew that the high priest actually sold franchises for money-changing booths and animal sales. It had become a very profitable business here in a place that was supposed to be reverent, worshipful, yet it was a loud, noisy market where people were being taken advantage of. And so Jesus does something about that. So we go back to John chapter 2. Verse 15 says, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And he begins to purify the temple. Now, this is new information in the Gospel of John that isn't in the Gospels. And you're saying, oh, wait a minute. I've read about Jesus cleansing the temple in the other Gospels. But Jesus did this twice. The other Gospels tell us about him doing this right before his crucifixion. In essence, that was the kind of the, the final thing that happened that, they, that, that, that the, the Jewish leaders felt like they had to get rid of Jesus. But this time is at the very beginning of his ministry. This is Jesus coming into the temple as the Son of God, the Son of the one whose house it is. This is Jesus coming in and making a declaration. Things need to change. See, because Jesus is more than just a righteously angry citizen here or even a prophet. He's come home to his father's house and found people turning it into a marketplace to satisfy their own greed. This is very personal for him. They're completely dishonoring the one they claim to be worshiping. And Jesus comes in as the Son of God. He comes in as, Nathaniel called him, the King of Israel. He comes in as the one that the prophets have spoken about. He comes in as the one who is called the prophet that Moses specifically mentioned to put things right. This is a major step. He comes in and he fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you turn to the last book of your Old Testament, something that they should have been expecting, one of the last revelations given to them in, in their scriptures, Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3 says, Behold, this is God speaking, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So Jesus has come as a purifier. 
one to clean up his father's house, one to clean up the worship of his father, one to put the sons of Levi right. Who are the sons of Levi? Oh, that's the priests and the Levites, the ones who assisted the priests in the temple. He comes quickly into his temple. They weren't expecting him, as it says here. And notice he comes as one who it says is he he will suddenly come into where? His temple. He comes in as the owner of the temple. It's under that authority that he acts according to Malachi's prophecy. Now this is only a precursor. This isn't a complete fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 because he'll come again, as I said, at the end of of his ministry. But he is yet going to come one more time to purify the sons of Levi and of Israel. We call that the tribulation period. And so there is yet another purification that ultimately is going to come to Israel. There's going to be fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. But imagine the chaos. And Anna, if you would go ahead and go to the next slide. Here's a view from from under the the columns looking out and you consider the, the Passover, this place is going to be packed. And Jesus comes with his whip of cords. It's chasing animals out. How many animals would have been there to be sold? Cows, sheep, doves going everywhere through crowds of people. How many coins were scattered all over the place? Were those people trying, running around trying to pick them up? Or were they running from the discipline of the sun of the house owner. What happened with these crowds? Some of them had to be running away. Animals going here and there. Everyone would know what was happening. This would be chaos. So some people were having a great fear of a riot, of the Romans intervening, coming down from the fortress right next door to the temple with access directly into that outer court. What was going to happen? And then John pulls us aside and whispers, here's what his disciples were thinking. How did he know? Well, he was one of them, right? And we don't know if this is what they were thinking right at that moment or as they reflected back on it. Um, But there, John explains to us I'm sorry, i got to get back into John here. So we head back over there to John chapter 2. That they remembered <clears throat> zeal for your house will consume me. Something from the Old Testament that said that, that is exactly what's going on here. Jesus is totally eaten up, is totally consumed by his passion for the place of God's worship. And they're, they're, they're thinking of Psalm chapter 69, verses 7 through 9. So let's turn back there and look at, look at those verses. And this is David writing in Psalm 69, speaking of himself, speaking of, of the difficulty that he's having with, with the, his, his enemies being on him. And causing him trouble. Then in verse 7 he says, Because for your sake, speaking to God, I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. 
I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. John and the others make a connection, whether it's right now or as they look back on this. But David was a faint picture of the coming king. He was the the king that they all looked back to, right, of Israel. But Jesus was the ultimate king, the anointed one. And the emphasis here is that the king's passion for the true worship of God makes a break between him and so many other people. I wonder if this isn't why they mentioned his brothers at the beginning. We don't really see him with his brothers after this. Are they terribly embarrassed by what Jesus did there? Others saying, he's not safe to be around. He's kind of radical. I'm not sure if I can be around him. Jesus, like David, David had to make some breaks. There were people who hated David because of what he stood for. And Jesus is like that only more. He's drawing a line in the sand here, saying, pursue the true worship of God or be divided from the sent Messiah. The two can't... Disregarding the true worship of God as it should be can't go together with following the Messiah. And of course, the leaders of Israel, especially the priestly line who were making all the money on this, they want us to know, well, who are you? Who are you to do this in the temple? Who are you to disrupt God's Passover? And what he did is a direct attack on what the priests are doing. He's condemning their sacrilegious desecration of the temple. They are what needs to be cleansed. So who is he to do it? It's a valid question, but it's asked without self-evaluation. They should have been saying, oh, what is it we're doing wrong here? That somebody would throw all this out. Was there any sense of guilt within them? Or are they just angry because they're not getting their money? It seems, though, it's more like a presumptuous a presumptuous question with the hope that they'll just, just discredit Jesus' actions and show him to be just this radical. And Jesus' response to them is, is crazy in their eyes. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The building was what was on their minds. They're all about all of these grand pillars, huge building. What, what was becoming it would have been a one, one of the wonders of the world had it been around when they made that list. They'd been working on it, as they'll point out, for decades. But Jesus was focused on the fulfillment of what the building symbolized. His response was an opportunity for them to stop and reevaluate and recognize who he is. But their response was a response without understanding. Uh, they focus on, that, on the physical rather than what God might really be doing here in rebuking them and their destruction of worship. 
They are instead awed by the work on the temple which Herod the Great had begun, as they say, some 46 years before. They were thinking this is something great. They were more impressed with that than the presence of God that was said to dwell among them. They're more about, upset about their, the disruption of their commercial schemes and their power than the possibility that the Messiah might have actually shown up here in the temple, the one they'd been waiting for. In fact, when Jesus cleanses the temple again, we get clearly that that's what's on their mind at about the same time. If you go ahead to John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, here's their response to that amazing sign. It says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's their response to a man dead four days being raised back to life. Oh, we're going to lose our spot, our power, our status. That's the problem clear back when Jesus started his ministry as well. And then the last four verses, John kind of gives us private insight into what was going on here. Verse 21, he tells us what Jesus really meant. Says he was speaking of the what? The temple of his body. The temple building was important, but again, it was just a shadow, a picture of what God was doing. But Jesus is Emmanuel as Mary was told before his birth. God with us. Here is the one who in human form dwells with us, and he is God. He is the Word, as chapter 1 said. The Word dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled with us. Here's the reality of what the, the, the temple symbolized. His body now became the temple the fulfillment of what that building was supposed to picture. And they would destroy his body, and he would rise again. And he shows here when it says, if you you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again, that he himself has a role in his own resurrection. Uh, We have different places where it talks about the Father raised him, the Holy Spirit is involved in his resurrection, but Jesus is involved in his resurrection resurrection as well. In chapter 5, verse 26, he'll say, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus being God doesn't have to derive his life from somewhere else. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he'll say, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Listen carefully. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus is involved even in his own resurrection. In John chapter 11, as he's about to raise Lazarus, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. 
That's what he's getting at when he talks about tear down this temple. And then John continues to, to whisper in our ear, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed on his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So there were people carefully watching Jesus. And that's that, that when it says that, uh, that they were observing his signs, it's, a word, it's not a word for just they glanced and noticed, but there were people watching carefully. Uh, there were people with their eyes on him and saying, what is this man doing? What is he about? One of those people, by the way, has the name Nicodemus. We'll see him in the next chapter. We learn here that Jesus has been performing other miracles, other signs. And his people have watched him heal and do things that, that no ordinary man could do. They start to see something in this miracle worker. They start to trust him, at least as a miracle worker, at least as a prophet. But how far does that trust go? Well, we don't know that, but... Notice Jesus' rea reaction to their, their trust or their faith. Verse 24 says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. And John makes a great play on words. You here. they were believing in him, but he was not believing in them. Or they were trusting in him, but he was not entrusting himself to them. Because seeing Jesus' miraculous signs later in his, in his ministry, people will want to make him an earthly king. Uh, that happens in, in John chapter 6, verse 15. He's fed the 5,000. And they're like, hey, we like what this guy's doing. Let's, let's trust him to be the king. It says, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See why he didn't entrust himself to them? They had a whole different agenda. They wanted an earthly king who could do miracles, who could feed them, who could cure their diseases. And all of that, good things, right? But not the ultimate things. If those things are ultimate, then you're missing out. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came for the worship of his father to be restored to where it ought to be. In fact, when Jesus then in the rest of chapter 6 lays out what, why he's here and what he's all about and just how totally committed a person who believes in him is going to be, many of them, according to verse 66, walk away. They just leave when they realize how serious the commitment is. It says there, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So the trust only went so far as they were gaining some benefits. Jesus wanted all of them totally united with him. And we'll get to that in chapter 6. And so Jesus, just like he didn't trust Mary with the timing of his first miracle, doesn't trust the course of his public ministry to what the people want. Sinners will always corrupt those things. Limited people will not see God's big picture. Jesus is focused completely on the Father's will, the Father's plan. And so he begins his public ministry with a time of, of 
great drama. Challenge to religious leaders. Challenge to traditions that men have established in their worship of God. And a challenge to missed understand, understandings of the Scripture. And he gives them here with this dramatic scene an opportunity to turn away from what's false, to turn away from greed, to turn away from false traditions, and follow him into salvation and life. And his purpose hasn't changed. That's what he wants for us as well, isn't it? He wants us to stop and evaluate and take a look. What are, what are my motives? What am I doing in my worship? What am I doing in my patterns of life? Am I worshiping the one true God? Or am I worshiping my desire for things, for money, for comfort, for prestige, for the list goes on? Jesus loves to tear those things apart for us, at least temporarily, to give us a chance to stop and say, what am I really about? Why do I go and worship with others? Why do I call myself a, a Christian, a follower of the Christ? What's that all about? Or maybe you've never been to that point. But he will challenge you to be all in. Not just take on some religion. Not just add some practices to your life. Uh, when Jesus comes in, he's all for the glory of God. He's all for his purposes and his timing. And he calls us to submit ourselves to him and what he has in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for challenging us through Jesus. I pray that you would open up our hearts to, to evaluate, to consider, and not, not be like the, the priests who rejected him and later wanted to kill him, but help us to be like his disciples who saw and and thought and continued listening and watching. And, and, and though they were sinners and, and didn't fully understand, they did believe. They did follow you. Did walk with Jesus and, and then live for him. Help us to, to have that be our full and complete desire today and, and in the days to come. Help us to know him more fully as this, this passage invites us to. Uh, to know that he's not uh, just... Jesus who quietly does miracles in the background, but he is Jesus who challenges all levels of human authority and life with the truth of, of who he is. Help us to be bold in sharing that as well. In Jesus' name I pray.